Well, good morning. May the Lord bless you this morning as you rest and trust in him. I heard a statement, uh, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, where quoting some guy who's dead and gone, I don't know who, uh, someone said somewhere, I guess I should preface it that way, uh, the most important thing happening in the world today is happening here. And this is the most important moment in history, most important thing going on in society is what's happening in the Lord's house. I believe that. Uh, here, the saints are being encouraged and strengthened. Hope is found. People are uh, turning from their sins and turning to Christ. They're finding a great Savior. And so uh, we come with great expectation to hear from God, meet with God, and God meeting with his people in a special way. And uh, that's my prayer for you is that you would just be encouraged in his unfailing uh, promises. Why don't you open your Bibles with me to John chapter number 5, John 5. Uh, and you will have to find that on your own. I didn't look up the page number. So, so just cheat off your neighbor. Look off their Bible. I think that would help you out. As you're finding your place there, let me just mention uh, the sportsman's uh, banquet coming up, Jim. Uh, it takes a lot of work to, to get that uh, going and get into motion, both setting up and taking down. Uh, so if you're able to do that, we'd, uh, I'm sure Jim would not refuse your help. Uh, actually, I'm pretty certain that he will uh, more than likely ask you to help, even if you don't want to help. So... Might as well go ahead and get the reward of doing it willingly and and cheerfully. And it is a great opportunity to uh, to just uh, serve and have the gospel go out and have a good time. So keep that in mind coming up March fourth, John five. I'm again reading uh, this morning in verse number sixteen. And we'll read down to verse number thirty. And this is why. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And we'll be reminded what these things are in just a moment. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Coming out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we can gather this morning. Just pray that you would speak to our hearts. Give us ears to hear, Lord. And we'll give you the glory for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is an enigma uh, to those who are around him in the gospel narratives and, quite frankly, to society today. It's not changed 
much. Uh, I know a century ago, scholars were trying to figure out who he was in some pursuit of trying to find the man behind the myth, so to speak, as they were searching for this historical figure, uh, trying to dismiss what the Bible says and all the things going along with it. And, and all of it was trying to wrestle with just the prominence Jesus has within society, uh, within history over the past 2,000 years. Uh, people of all sorts of religions, of all shapes and sizes, does something uh, and attempts in some way to try to define who Jesus is. Even cults uh, that claim some sort of uh, Christianity also try to lay some claim to Jesus. Well, this misunderstanding of Jesus and the mystery of him should not be um, should not be a surprise to us today because it was the same thing we see in his own day. The world that he lived in oftentimes showed us that his closest followers, those who nearest to him, misunderstood him and was confused by the things he said and the things that he did. In fact, uh, most of the time you see him walking with his disciples, it seems he's always trying to correct their misunderstanding about things uh, as much as he is the multitude around him. And John tells us that is because he come to the, his own world, he created the world in John 1, and he come to the world and the world did not know him. He was in the world, the world was his creation, it's his possession, all things were created for him, by him, he it, he is the very reason all things consist as it is in Colossians. And yet as he comes into the world, the Son of Man, the Word incarnate, the world does not understand him. They do not know him. We see this, even John trying to help us along some 2,000 years later, giving us notes within the gospel after Jesus says something perplexing trying to help us understand what he's saying. You remember earlier in the gospel where Jesus says, when you tear down this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And the people of his day were like, what in the world are you talking about? And John wants us not to be like what in the world you're talking about. So he says he was talking about the temple of his own body. And the disciples remember that after Jesus rose from the dead. The multitude were drawn to him Many who were needy sought him for help, for healing. Disciples longed to get more insight in, into this kingdom of God and his preaching and teaching. Enemies surrounded him, seeking to silence him. We see that all through the narratives in John's gospel, and it intensifies here from chapter number 5 on. Now, there's something to be said of trying to make everyone love you. Isn't it for those of you who try to make everyone happy and love you? Jesus couldn't even pull that off. And he was perfect. So maybe that will give you a little comfort. That's the only application you take home, I guess. <laughs> One thing is for certain that this 30-year-old Jewish teacher in the first century would not only have a global impact... He is the most unavoidable person that has ever lived. He's the most unavoidable person that has ever lived. This will become clear in the text that we've looked, we're looking at this morning. Unavoidable for the very same reason he is unrecognizable to the people of his day. Because they could not see his relationship or see him in light of his relationship with him and the Father. In fact, what we find here in John's narrative here is that in him revealing the Father, they proved not only to dishonor Jesus, but they proved their own ignorance and their dishonor to the Heavenly Father. And that same thing is said of us today. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father. Well, let's look at this together in, in context as we looked at last week, and that is this situation that has come about Jesus walks into this area and he heals a man who had been lame for 30 <clears throat> 38 years and a, a miraculous thing had taken place he picks up his bed uh, and he goes on his way uh, and he's healed 
And what we found last week is as we look at the response in verse number 9 and following uh, to our current passage is that the Pharisees and the Jews of his day, instead of rejoicing in the grace of God in this miracle, this display of his might and his power to heal this man, instead of doing that, they focus on some violation of their tradition. Here's a man carrying a bed and the man comes to them and says, don't, don't look at me and, and what I'm doing. This guy healed me. I was lame and, and I've been healed of this. And, and instead of rejoicing in that, they, they are so nitpicking on the law and traditions. Why are you carrying a mat? You shouldn't be carrying a mat. Well, I, I used to couldn't carry a mat. Now I can carry a mat. And isn't that something worth talking about? No, you shouldn't be carrying a mat. In essence, the conversation earlier on, uh, beginning in verse number 9, notice with me, now that day was the Sabbath, the day the man was healed, and the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up the mat. In essence, they're asking him, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? What in the world are you doing? Well, the man uh, responds to this, uh, don't ask me who I am. I'm nobody. I'm just doing what the guy told me to do. Notice again, he goes on and says, but he answered the man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man who had healed did not know for it was Jesus withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Of course, he tells the Jews what had taken place. And so the question then goes, who does Jesus think he is? What gives him the right and the authority to heal a guy and practice medicine, even if it's divine healing, on the Sabbath? And they're really pushing the question, if this man was truly godly, if he was truly righteous, if he was truly from God, then certainly he would abide by our rules and regulations. So we tend to think that if God was truly God and righteous, when he would come among us, he would praise us for all of our abnormalities and all of our traditions and rules. And that's the question Jesus leans into in verse number 16 as he begins to describe himself in relationship to the Father. He is like the Father, verse number 16 and 17. Look at it with me. It's interesting, Jesus speaks without hesitation as he speaks to these men. He is not intimidated by them. He is not overwhelmed at their curiosity nor their anger. He just simply says what is certain and what is true. They were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse number 17, but Jesus answered them, my father's working until now and I am working. And so Jesus is claiming to these people, my justification, my authority, my autonomy to, to heal this man on this day, the Sabbath day, is rooted in my relationship to the Father. I see my Father working and I'm working. Now, you probably would have had to bend in those days as you would have kind of got in the curious debate, does God break his own laws? What do you think? Does God break the Sabbath? So rabbis come together and they try to cooperate and say, how can, how can God continue his work of providence in all of creation without breaking his own Sabbath law? Now, all they were doing was trying to figure out how they could justify all the things that they had prohibited the nation of Israel. And so they come up with this clever answer to the question, God never leaves his dwelling place since God is everywhere. God never has to go anywhere. So he's always in his dwelling place. And secondly, as far as doing any kind of providential work, as far as keeping creation altogether, he never does anything that equals to his own status or, or he never lifts anything above his head, to put it that way. So after all, God follows his own rules and, and so they're content with that answer. One thing that's for certain that they all agree is God has continually kept things going and moving along. And Jesus is simply saying God has the authority and the right and the autonomy to work and so do I. So do I. 
by Jesus stating this statement here in verse number 17, my father is working until now and I am working. He is, he is joining the very things that he's doing, his energy and his effort in, in, in parallel and uniting them to the father's work. All that he is doing is the same thing the father is doing. We'll see that more in verse number 19. But there's a second thing that happens in the verse here that, well, the, the guys take aim at. Verse number 18 says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. And the Jews would say in those days, Our father of Israel, our father collectively, but they would not say, My father, speaking of God. In fact, you could read writings of all the ceremonial things they would do as they would talk about God and write his name and those things like that you might find interesting. But nevertheless, Jesus speaks to them and, and unveils himself to him, explains himself to him by the very fact that, that God the Father is his Father. He's claiming that the Father is his. And the Jews are not only angry at him, wanting to persecute him, but it is so outrageous that they want to put him to death. What would make you want to kill someone? Don't answer that. <laughs> Some of you, your, your level is a lot lower than other people's, cutting you off in traffic, you know. But because the man says... And he claims that God is his heavenly father. The people of his day that is supposed to know God and know his word and, and be familiar with God and be, be the, the, walking in the, in the straight and narrow path, the response to Jesus' statement is, let's put him to death. Let's kill him. That's remarkable. And some have said that Jesus never claim to be God and none of the gospel counts. It's just something we derive out of that. I think if you would ask the people of his day, they would have a different story, wouldn't they? Here is a clear and bold declaration that he is saying he and the Father are equal. He is just like the Father. He is equal with the Father. They seek to kill him. Notice he further explains in verse number 19. Not only is he like the Father, but what he does is with and from the Father. Now, we could say that the people have misunderstood Jesus. He has said, my father works now and I work. And so the people could have, oh, he's making himself equal to God. And Jesus could come along. No, you misunderstood me. I wasn't saying that at all. Instead, what Jesus does, you heard me correctly. In fact, if you were astonished at the fact that my father works and I work, wait till he finishes speaking. Verse number 19, he further describes this as he says, so Jesus said to them in response to them wanting to kill him because he was making himself equal with God, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Leaning in to this understanding of who Jesus is as he's exposing himself to all these people in, in this conversation he says, I want you to understand very clearly whatever I do is united to in perfect harmony with what the Father is doing. There's not a disconnect. And some suggest what we have here is something of a, a parable of a son who would pick up a trade and as he would learn this trade from his father, he would do exactly as the father would do. He would learn how to do things the way the father would do it. The father would give him instruction and so he would carry on. So at the time when he would become an uh, expert at this, you would see the father's hand in his work. He would look like the father because he learned from the father. And it, it may be right in saying that what Jesus is saying at least that we know is that everything he does is a reflection and is an extension of what God the Father is doing. Now there's a mystery we have to admit within the Godhead. There are three persons, yet one God. And we're not meant to blur the lines and the fact of we're not to get the the distinctiveness confused. Jesus makes that very clearly. The Gospels make that very clearly over and over. The distinction between the Father and the Son, 
The Father sends the Son, the Son comes, the Son's perfect obedience, the Father wills, the Son carries out that will. And so we see that distinction. What here is, he's bringing those distinctions together as when they move, even as they do separate acts, they are unified in those acts together. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. He is not independent or self-determined. Jesus did not live 33 and a half years to do his own thing. He was a rebel and went against the grain in some ways. And I, I say that just he's against man's traditions, but he was always in perfect obedience and fellowship with the Father. He is not independent of the Father. He's not self-determined. The Son can do nothing of His own accord. He chooses to do the will of the Father, does nothing outside of the will of the Father, perfectly obeying Him. And whatever He does, He does because He sees the Father doing. The people should have recognized this statement and what had just taken place. Here a lame man had been in this position paralyzed for 38 years and Jesus speaks to the man and commands him to get up and the man gets up and his his body is restored and what Jesus is saying is what you saw in this man and the healing of this man, the effect that taken place, it's the very same thing you should expect if my father was here on earth. If God was walking among us, this is what you would see him doing because in fact he and the father are united. They work in perfect harmony. Jesus does exactly what he sees the Father doing, and in so doing, we see and the Father is exposed to us. No one has ever seen God at any time except the only begotten Son. We we were told that at the beginning of John 1, and the Son has come to exegete Him, to explain Him, to expose us to the character and the nature of God. And how does He do that? By everything He does, He is showing us who the Father is. Everything He does is an extension of the Father's work, is an explanation of the character of God and a a, a realization or a revelation of that will in, in time and space. To see Jesus in action, to put it another way, is what he tells his disciples, to see him in action, to hear his words, is to see the Father and hear the words of the Father. You remember that, don't you? Later on when the disciples says, show us the Father. He says, have I been so long with you that you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The visible manifestation of the Godhead is given to us in this person, Jesus Christ. What does that tell us about those who reject him? That they don't see the Father in his actions and his deeds? It tells us at least this, that they don't know the Father. We see that later on, don't we? Verse number 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There's this, this connection in this relationship with the Father's Son. And to reject the Son is to reject the Father. To misunderstand the Son is to misunderstand the Father. And that's the, the reality of the religion and legalism of Jesus' day. They, they claim to know him. They claim to follow him. But in all of their ways and in their encounters with Jesus Christ, they prove that they are ignorant and blind and they are hopeless. So there is this, verse number 19, this connection between Jesus' work. Notice verse number 20. He further adds to this, For the Father loves the Son, and so him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So not only whatever Jesus does demonstrates to us who the Father is, he reminds us that Jesus' understanding, his expression his revelation of the father is perfect and complete the father does not hold 
withhold anything from his son. The prophets in the Old Testament, they saw a little bit of God. They understood something of God as God communicated to them and conveyed his will to them and his work to them. And and that's not the way it is with the son. They look through a glass darkly, but the son is beholding the face of God. The father reveals all of himself, all of his plan, all of his will to him. And it's almost as if he's saying, verse number 20, you, you just marvel at what I did here and at what I'm saying. Just hold your horses. Just wait. This is going to blow you away when you see what further things that I will do. Notice, he says, in greater works than these, he will show him so that you may be amazed, that you may marvel. And we see that all through the gospel narrative, don't we? Blind men will see, lepers will be cleansed, Jesus will walk on water, calm a storm. He'll feed 5,000. But I think these greater works point more to the work of redemption. That he will enter in and enter in and take the cup of the Father and enter into that passion of taking our sins and not only taking our sins, but that work completed in the fact that he will raise again from the dead on the third day. He says, you think this is something, you just wait and see, buddy. Notice with me, the work of the father and son is described for us in verse 21 and following down to verse number 30 in two ways. That is his work of giving life and his work of judgment. His work of giving life and his work of judgment. One rabbi has said that there are certain things that only God holds the key for. Carson mentions this in his commentary on this. They taught that God alone held the key to reign. You know what that means, right? He, he alone is... Uh, he alone can give rain. He holds the key to it. You get it. He unlocks it. And secondly, God alone holds the key to the womb, especially all through the Old Testament when you speak about those who are barren and God giving them uh, the ability to have children. The third key is the key of the resurrection of the dead. God alone and he alone holds this key of the resurrection of the dead. Notice verse 21 well, the Bible says, for the Father, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37, some of you are familiar with that passage of Scripture, very great illustration for us. Let me just read a few verses just to kind of get a glimpse of this out of the Old Testament. It's probably the most clearest place you could go to about God raising the dead and giving life to those who are dead. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me among them, and behold, there was very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were dry, and said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. I mean, you have to just imagine what these prophets went through when you read the Old Testament. Can these bones live? He says, concluding that parable and and, uh, that, that section, that vision, verse number 12, he says, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So what Jesus is saying, just as the the Jewish people understood that there was a resurrection of the dead and that belongs to God and, and according to his power and authority and he alone can do that. He's saying just as the father gives life to the dead, so the son of man has been given authority to give life to whomever he will. 
this life-giving, dead-raising work would not be apart from the will of God, but would be in line with God's will. The Son gives life to whom He will. Well, that's kind of nice, isn't it? But who receives it? What is he talking about here when he speaks about the Son gives life to whom he will? Notice with me verse 24 as he seeks to answer this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. At first glance, we read verse 21 and we think of the final judgment when everyone will be, will be brought before God, before his court, and they will be judged accordingly. We'll speak about that in a moment. But here Jesus speaks about this authority to give life and he puts it in the context of he has authority to give life now, not just then. In fact, that's the very thing he's come to do. You see the verbs in verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has passed from death unto life. There's this immediate application of eternal life that he's wanting us to see here and is given to those who who hear and who believe. Those who hear his word and who believes in him. Notice verse 25, he he puts this in kind of an overwhelming picture. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will, what? But this is not in reference to the final judgment. This is in reference to what he has come to do. This is in reference to that power of the gospel in Romans chapter number one. It is a power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Gentile. This is in reference to those who are spiritually dead in trespasses and sin. They will hear the voice of the Son of God and in hearing it they will come forward and they will live. This gift of eternal life is illustrated in this sense that that there's a a world of people that are entombed in their sin and trespasses according to the course of this world and God will quicken them by the powerful word and his spirit and in quickening them that they will live. That's eternal life. That's everlasting life. Going back again to the example in Ezekiel 37 where he says, will these bones live? The prophet says, you know, Lord. And the Lord says to him, essentially, preach to them. And through the proclamation of the word, through the proclamation of the gospel, through the declaration of who Jesus is and what he has done will bring life to the dead. That's the promise that we have as a church. That's why we go out and we don't preach ourselves. That's why we carry the gospel because the power of God in his word and in that gospel to bring life. That is his word to his sheep as he calls them unto himself and gathers them and gives them life. Just as the father raises the dead, so the son raises those now who are spiritually dead and gives life to whomever he wills. And what joy that reminds us is that he now gives us life and we are now the children of God and there is now no more condemnation and we now have the Spirit of God. The full promise of what we find in verse number 24. But notice his work is not only described as the one who gives life, but it's also described as the one who will judge. Verse number 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor him just as they've honored the Father. Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, Jesus is not speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to his friends or those people who have come to get something, gain something from him. He is speaking to people who want to murder him. We read that, didn't we? Look at that verse number 18. This is why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. He was committing blasphemy, making himself equal with God. And he's speaking to his enemies. It's almost as saying, you're trying to silence me to do away with me. You're trying to get rid of me. But don't you understand 
that all judgment has been given to me by my Father. He will be the very one who will preside over their case when it comes to the end. And that's true not just of them. They will be astonished because they will be confronted by him once more. Not in the meek and lowly, not in the one who will receive their stripes and their their beatings and their abuse as he did his first coming but one who is so overwhelmingly awesome in all of his glory that John, at looking at him, falls at his feet as a dead man. God will reveal to the world of all uh, human existence, heaven and hell, all alike, he will reveal the glory and the splendor of who the Son truly is. God has appointed a judge, and it is his only begotten Son. The people should not be astonished that people are coming to life at his words, spiritual life, because he will speak once more. And that's what we find later on here in verse number 27 and following. He will speak once more and the dead will come to life and obey him. As he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man, speaking that reference of that messianic figure who received all glory and honor in the book of Daniel, verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And Jesus has already made a bold statement in the fact of saying, I'm doing the very thing, I'm revealing the Father in everything I'm doing. He steps further to say that, that all will come and honor the Son in the same way, just like they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son will not honor the Father. Then he further adds to that, don't you know, I will speak in one day and everyone will will act in obedience and they will come before me for that final day of reckoning. God will reveal the glory of his son. He will be exalted among all beings. Heaven, hell, believers, non-believers, those who have died in the past, those who are present, all will stand before him. All will see him in his splendor. He will be worshipped by the host of heaven and exalted as he is now by the host of heaven. He will be honored and among the church as they stand around his throne in Revelation chapter number 5 and number 7 and exalt his glorious name. He will be held in terror and fear by every demonic force just as they do at this present moment as he has defeated them. He is their creator. And the world of lost humanity will recognize him as God and will fear and be overwhelmed in his presence and be silenced by him. Jesus is saying that's who he is. The final, the ultimate Judge, we see that in Philippians 2, 9, don't we? When he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No exemption. Total and ultimate Glory will be given to him by those who are his adversary and those who long to see his coming. That's what you find out here at the end of this. There's an hour coming. There's a day that God has appointed in the future. We don't know when it is, but there is a day when God will come and and he will bring a day of reckoning. Verse number 29 
they will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a rather sober point being made here, isn't there? It's ultimate. If the Bible is true, I believe it to be true. If Jesus is who he says he is, and I believe he is who he says he is, you notice the seriousness that we should take passages like this. There's no middle ground. There's no alternate route. There's no, well, that's good for you. I've, I've got Buddha or I've got nothingness or whatever else other people are going into. I don't really care about religion. That's your thing. Makes you feel better and get along to life pretty good. Uh, it's not my thing. No, God says there will be a day of accountability. We'll all stand before him. And this is the outcome of that standing. This is the outcome of that event. This is the, the aftermath of the reality of who Jesus is and that he will judge. He will preside over this great event. And there will be some who in that day will face Christ without fear. Now think about that. The ultimate day of reckoning, the, the, the climax of, of all of human existence in this moment, standing before God. And Jesus is saying here, for some at that time when they stand before him, they will stand before him without fear without the fear of judgment. That's what he says here, right? Some unto the resurrection of life. That being exposed to the glory of Christ and all that he is will not bring about condemnation. It will not consume us or overwhelm us in a, in a sense of fear and dread or terror or slavish fear, but it will bring about the anticipation of more life a fuller existence, a greater longing, a duration and quality that we have not yet experienced. And that's why the Bible speaks to the church and says, don't you realize this is the blessed hope and appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells them in Titus, because it's seeing him for who he is. We find the fullness we've been longing for, the acceptance we've been promised we find all of our hopes and anticipations fulfilled. Notice the text. He says, some will, who have done good to the resurrection of life. What does he say doing good? Has he changed his mind from back in verse 24? Was it believed then? And he says, well, I, what I really mean is, is about doing good. You've got to get yourself there. You've got to make this happen for yourself. Is it really about your good works and your bad works kind of evening out? And I would say no. Those who have done good are those who have been made, in life, made alive in Christ through his gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. What is he saying to you, Christian? He's saying if you have heard his word and if you have believed him, if you've been born again, that you do not come into judgment. That you do not live facing tomorrow with dread and suspicion whether or not God is going to crush you or destroy you or overwhelm you or what will it be like when you stand before him in the day of judgment. It will be no judgment. He does not come into judgment but is passed from death unto life. And what the Bible tells us this morning, church, is that, that this is possible because that judgment which we deserve, which was owed to us, rightfully ours with our name on it was taken by him on the cross is not that God is unrighteous and and forgot to judge some people and decided to judge other people no he met out that judgment on his only begotten son and he has offered that grace and that gift to all who hear his word and believe so there is in this anticipation of this final reckoning before God that that which has been promised to us will be proved in our acceptance before him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in into my rest. 
Or as a Hebrew writer says, there is a rest for the people of God that we are longing and striving to enter into. Jesus, this unavoidable figure for those who have come to know the life that he gives through his gospel, through his word, and believed on his Father who sent him, this day will be a day of joy. It will be a day which we continue to long for. We long to see him because we love him. That's what Peter says. He's a fisherman. And yet he says we love him, though we haven't seen him. But he shows us the contrast to that, and I'll close with this. There are those who have done good unto the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of the judgment. There will be some who will be raised in that day. And in fact, if Jesus' words in Matthew is correct on the Sermon on the Route, many will be raised in that day. A great multitude of people without number will be raised in that day unprepared to meet their Maker. They will face the outcome of their ways. They will face the outcome of their choices and their rebellion against Him. They will bear the wages of their sin and the condemnation which is theirs. Many in that day will be those who have been living in deceit, thinking they have served Christ and known Him, yet they will hear at His own words, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Some in that day will be those who have openly and defiantly rebelled against Christ and rejected Him and and, and militantly worked against the gospel. But I would dare say there will be a greater multitude of people in that day who will be there because of their indifference and their, and their ignoring of him altogether. Many who had hearing the gospel just lay undecided and, and, and just kind of leave it alone and leave it alone. And some will be there with little knowledge of him, yet all. Everyone, every single from the greatest to the least will stand before him, will bow before him and declare him, he is God. Jesus is the most unavoidable person in all of existence. He's not an afterthought in this life. Everything, life and death, both find their point of reference in him. So he's telling the people of his day. That's what he tells us through his word. Life and death, they find their point of reference in him. And as he tells to this multitude of antagonists and enemies who seek to silence him and put him away, he is the divine son who gives life, but he is also the appointed judge who will, who will one day preside over them. They will not silence him. In fact, at that day they themselves will be silenced. Well, this kind of passage and this kind of exposure to who Christ is brings us to this glorious rejoicing for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. What a joy to know that my sins are gone, to know that he died in my place, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a joy to be reminded. No wonder Jesus, when he told his disciples, to rejoice in all the cool things that you do, that demons obey you and all this other stuff that you're doing. Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. Because what you look forward to is not condemnation, but it's life to its fullness, what God meant it to be in his presence. This also is one of those kind of sermons that as we rejoice, church, it brings a soberness in what we do today because we are reminded that there are so many people that are not ready for this day. Unprepared. Unconcerned. I don't know how many times I've thought and I've been thankful that when I didn't have enough sense to pray for myself, other people were lifting my name up in prayer. And I know there's people on our prayer list and people in your families that you're lifting up in prayer. I would pray, I would just encourage you to keep on, that God would intervene in ways in which you and I can't. Not only praying for those who are not prepared, but, but actively working, sharing, giving the gospel, sharing the word of God to those around you. 
being a witness and a light to the reality of the joy that's found in Christ and the terror that's found without him. But I'd say most importantly this morning, it also brings us back to the reality of where you are and what have you done with Jesus? What have you done with the reality of who he is and what he has come to offer? Are you prepared to meet him? And if not, why would you wait? Hebrew writer says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. You don't know what tomorrow will hold. You know what this afternoon will hold. Now is the time to make preparations for eternity. And I would pray if you haven't done that, that you would do even today. It is a serious thing to fall into the hands of a living God, the Bible says. And if you're not prepared, you can do that in your seat at this moment, as the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Well, with that, bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day you've given to us. Thank you for this glimpse at our glorious Savior. Just to imagine one day when you will be giving us eyes, glorified body and eyes that we might see him for who he is. That's what he prayed for. And, and later on in the Gospel of John, that we may behold his glory, the glory that he shared with you from before the beginning. So we pray, Lord, as we anticipate this, let this work in our heart. Let it purify us, not only give us joy in the moment and difficulty, but let it purify us and, and challenge us in the way we serve one another. And God, I pray most um, for those here that don't know Christ, they have not received life, they have not come to him, Oh, that you would impress upon their hearts and minds, even at this very moment, that he is so unavoidable. And now we find him meek and lowly. So I pray that they would come to him, that they might have life in Jesus' name. Amen.